NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Africa's Lake Tanganyika is the longest freshwater lake in the world. It's also home to more than 350 species of fish, which millions of people depend upon for lives and livelihoods. But recently, scientists have noted a troubling trend. All the data that we have available to us right now points towards decreased fish populations. And the evidence suggests climate change could be the culprit. There's really no question that the lake has warmed up. Our special series, Early Signs, reports from a warming planet, continues this week on Living on Earth. Also, why the red, red robin goes bob, bob, bobbin along. You see a robin hopping along and then it cocks his head and lots of people, lots of naturalists have written popular articles saying that they're listening for for worms. The early bird that gets the worm and more. So stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. For supporters of offshore wind power, there's an ill wind blowing out of Alaska. The state's congressman, Don Young, the powerful Republican chairman of the House Transportation Committee, has tagged an amendment onto an appropriations bill for the Coast Guard. The last-minute amendment, with no congressional debate, could sink plans for Cape Wind. That's the nation's first large-scale offshore wind farm that developers want to put in the waters off of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Cape Wind has been five years in the making, and its proposed 130 turbines could produce three-quarters of the region's electric power without generating greenhouse gases. Joining me to talk about this latest chapter in the Cape Wind saga is Bob Whitcomb. He's editor of the editorial page of Rhode Island's Providence Journal. He's also working on a book about the Cape controversy, Bob, hi there. Hello, Bruce. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Let me ask you about this um, amendment to a Coast Guard bill. What specifically does this bill do? Well, what this bill would do would bar uh, these offshore windmill projects from within a mile and a half of shipping channels. At least they expressed fears that there might be collisions. But this is very odd because current Coast Guard rules allow uh, shipping within 500 feet of oil and, I believe, gas drilling uh, platforms. So it seems to be that this provision, this amendment, is specifically aimed at getting rid of uh, Cape Wind because uh, if it were to be followed, the backers of Cape Wind say the, the project would not be economically viable. Well, what evidence does uh, the congressman have to buttress his, his argument? Uh, that uh, None that him- we really know of. Uh, there were some concerns expressed in England by the British Ministry of Defense. Uh, and I suppose you could argue that perhaps some boats' radar might be affected by the wind turbines. That seems to be overtaken by developments. Apparently, you can adjust the software in such a way as to uh, pretty much eliminate that problem. And there are wind turbines, big, big collections of them, in, in, for example, Denmark, virtually on Copenhagen Harbor. Uh, there's a big new wind farm off Ireland, uh, many planned for other parts of Northwest Europe. Nobody, it doesn't seem to be a big concern over there. Well, you mentioned Denmark. Uh, their limit is a quarter of a mile. Yeah. Every country, of course, has slightly different regulations, but uh, they're, they're very close. But it's actually much more difficult to do a lot of these things in the United States than it is in Europe. The central government, by fiat, can't order these things built in the same 
way that, for example, Denmark, they can be. Denmark made a determination uh, 30 years ago not to have nuclear and to pursue other forms of uh, alternate energy. And the, the central government or a council thereof pretty much orders where these things are going to go. It's much more difficult to do that in the U.S. We've got many more layers. Why would a congressman from Alaska be interested in a in something that's happening in Massachusetts. Well, there there are many speculations about this. Perhaps it's just a completely sincere concern about navigation safety. Uh, that's one theory. Another theory is that Mr. Young is an old friend of a fellow called Guy Martin, who's a, a well-known lobbyist uh, in Washington. And many years ago, uh, Guy Martin helped uh, Mr. Young get the Alaska Pipeline project going. A lot of money's been spread around. Uh, to be fair, the pro-windmill crowd has spent a lot of money, too, not uh, on lobbying, uh, about perhaps half as much as the anti-crowd. We may never know. It's like many of the, the characters in this case. You don't really know why they're doing what they're doing, even though there is some, there's plenty of field for speculation. Well, I tried to call uh, Congressman Young's office a number of times to speak with him yes. and, and uh, never got a return phone call. Well, that, that follows this whole case where the people who have been most, I think, successful in blocking this project, whatever you think of it, have been the most secretive. Uh, Senator John Warner, probably most famous, famously uh, Senator Edward Kennedy of Massachusetts, uh, who has a family compound at Hyannisport that would overlook the the infamous wind farm, and he has been working assiduously for years to block this thing, but does not come out in the open and talk about it. What about Senator Warner? Uh, Senator Warner has two daughters uh, uh, in Osterville, or rather at summer places in Osterville, which is sort of the ground zero of the opposition to this uh, wind park. A very, very rich town. Many of the people there, not everybody, because there are supporters of the wind farm in, in Osterville and other rich areas on the south side of the Cape. Many of the people there don't like the, the, the wind farm idea. They want to look at these windmills, and they, they fear that their boating may be affected by it. There are other people, such as in the marina business, uh, real estate people, and so on, they think that'll hurt business, so they have more direct economic concerns. And I think at the beginning, not so much now, but even some sincere environmentalists who thought that these turbines would throw off the ecology of Nantucket Sound. But mo most of those concerns have been uh, pretty much eliminated by review. When I think of uh, Senator Kennedy, I think of you know a senator who's pretty green. Yeah, you think so. Uh, I, I think he's he simply is like a lot of us. We love the idea. You know, alternate energy is a great thing. All the people, virtually all the people opposing this wind farm say that alternate ener energy in general and wind farms in particular are great things. Just, you know, they just don't want them near them. I was reading that Senator Kerry um Who's from Massachusetts, yes, of course. right, and who has a, a – rather, his wife has a big uh, summer place in Nantucket. But he's come out, uh, at least if not against or for the uh, wind turbines, has, has come out against the Young Amendment pretty strongly. Yes, very strongly. And, in fact, it, it's interesting. A, a large number of people have. And if this thing does make it out of the House of Representatives, which is far from a sure bet, it's unlikely that it would get through the Senate because there's been a lot of outrage expressed, not so much about whether windmills are good or bad or whether this particular project is good or bad, but the way this amendment was sort of snuck in at night, which is very much uh, reminiscent of the way Senator Warner tried to kill the project, uh, oh, in late uh, 2004 with a bunch of amendments. My, my hunch at this point is that this thing won't go through because there's been too much sunlight on it. 
And that means that the uh, Cape Wind plan can go ahead? Well, no. This project has been a sort of a, a kind of Kafka-esque or Orwellian. I think there's 17 agencies or something it had to go through. Uh, there's over 4,000 uh, pages of reports of this thing, and it's still not over. Uh, the most important thing is an obscure federal agency called the Minerals Management Service that oversees, among other things, uh, oil and gas drilling. They have to clear it, and I think that's expected by, oh, the end of this year, maybe the beginning of next. And that would probably be pretty much the final song. How does this affect or bode for other offshore um, wind turbine farms? Well, I think if they're able to kill this, obviously they're going to have a great deal of difficulty getting financing, uh, at least for a big project. I think that you'll see smaller projects around. The big problem is to get financing uh, and to make putting these projects up uh, attractive to developers. And if this thing gets shot down because it's big and close to powerful, rich, influential people, it will certainly discourage a good number of people, I think, from entering the industry. Now, Bob, you're the uh, editor of the editorial page of the Projo. Uh, what's the Projo's uh, position on well, this? Well, we thing? favored this. Uh, we we've favored this uh, project from close to the beginning. We we realize that no project is perfect, and we've I think we've asked on the asked, well, did it have to be this big? And now we think it probably does have to be this big to be financially uh, viable. But we have run all sides. I think the thing that got us most intrigued in this was not so much the proposal itself is the various uh, methods by which uh, a comparatively small group of people tried to stop it. I think that's probably drove us in more than the the environmental or the energy issue itself. Well, this is certainly a great topic for an editorial page editor. I guess so. I think the movie might be better. What might you call it if it was a movie? Oh, boy. Well, certainly not Gone with the Wind. We've done all that. The Winds of War, maybe uh, that's been done, or The War of Winds. Well, Bob, thank you very much. Oh, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. Bob Whitcomb is the editor of the editorial page of the Providence Journal. Coming up, water, water everywhere. But to misquote Coleridge, there are precious few drops to drink. But first... Time now for your comments. Many people wrote in about our stories on the booming baby business. For some listeners, our conversation with author Deborah Spar about the hot market for adoption, in vitro fertilization, sperm donation, and surrogates was a sign that the times are indeed a-changing... While listening to your articles, I made some notes and realized that about 40% of the people I know cannot have children the traditional way, writes Stephen Grabowski, a listener to Maine Public Broadcasting. Just like adoption is no longer a hush-hush business, being infertile is no longer shameful. Amber, a listener to New Hampshire Public Radio, says, What's missing from the debate are the opinions of those conceived using the new technologies. We're now in our 20s, she writes, and it would be nice if the industry asked us for our thoughts on the issue, especially any of the long-term effects on children and society that experts spend so much time debating. 
In her commentary about the baby business, contributor Bonnie Auslander grappled with the environmental consequences of having more than one child. Allison Eddie Bluen, a listener to Maine Public Broadcasting, writes, It sounds so nice to say having fewer children could save the world, but I can see problems with this assumption both economically and environmentally. If you're really concerned for the planet, she writes, live as if you're in the developing world. Roberta Morris, a listener to WKAR in Ann Arbor, Michigan, was interested in our recent story about Biosphere 2, but says we didn't answer a crucial question. Surely, after 10 years, someone has determined why they had insufficient oxygen and too much CO2. Did they make a little mistake in arithmetic, she wonders? And finally, a correction to the Biosphere story. We said that Biosphere 2 was celebrating its 25th anniversary. Actually, it was the 15-year marker, September 26, 1991, to be precise. Don't hold your breath. Let us know what's on your mind. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is letters at LOE.org. Once again, letters at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. If you could fit all of the Earth's water into a gallon jug, the accessible fresh water, the stuff we actually can drink, would measure a little more than a teaspoon. Potable water is precious stuff. No water, no life. But planet Earth is in a precarious situation. Pollution, poverty, and the increasing demands of an expanding population are stressing the world's water supply. These were some of the issues on the agenda at the Fourth World Water Forum, which just concluded in Mexico City. Elizabeth Malkin covered the meeting for the New York Times. Hello, Elizabeth. Oh, thanks very much. I'm pleased to be here. So put a headline on this story for us, if you would. Well, that's a little difficult because uh, I think the forum was a very diffuse event. It was enormous. It lasted six days. And uh, there were apparently, according to the organizers, 11,000 people. There was no clear focus, but uh, what continued to be stressed at the forum was the enormous number of people who don't have access to running water or an adequate water supply even, and sanitation. And so if you had to put a headline, you would the headline would be, you know, despite all efforts, uh, more than a billion people don't have access to a suitable water supply, and a third of the population, world's population, 2.6 billion, don't have access to, to a proper toilet. So why have these types of summits? They seem to be very good at um, enumerating the the problems, uh, less good at actually coming up with some kind of um, methodology or way of uh, solving it. I think uh, because you have so many interests involved. So you have industry, government, uh, UN and other international organizations, the World Bank and NGOs uh, Everybody has such a different agenda that at the end it's a lowest common denominator declaration which doesn't come up with a very strong solution. In one of your articles for the New York Times, you wrote about this question of private water versus public water. Do you see that shift back to the public utilities providing water? 
Yes, I think there is definitely a shift. And uh, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan in, in 2003, he convened a special advisory board to come up with solutions for, you know, how to, to reach these Millennium Development Goals. And their recommendation was... You know, these are the agencies that have always provided water, and uh, these agencies need to be strengthened, and the way to do that is just to help them provide more information, to channel the funding to them, uh, to uh, require more accountability. So that is, I think, the interesting shift um, that came out of that. We tend to think of uh, these water problems as being like over there, Africa or Southeast Asia. I was reading that uh, Europe, 18% or over 40 million people live in countries without access to safe uh, drinking water. Yes, and I think that water, I mean, one of the things that struck me personally covering this is that water is is really a low priority even in countries where there are, where it's a it's a big problem and it does seem to be a low priority um, for for national governments it's usually seen as a as a local problem a municipal problem and so I think that's why you find even in developed countries uh, uh, that uh, people don't always have the access you would expect. Mexico City was the site of this year's summit. And I'm just wondering, it seems ironically appropriate as a place, considering that it it's, uh, has a drought, it has a, uh, it's, its floods often, and it's, it sits on a dried lake bed. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, uh, perhaps one positive thing, speaking as somebody who lives in Mexico City, is that there's been a little bit of more awareness of the problem of water for this city. Um, this city is pumping water out of its uh, aquifers twice as fast as they're naturally replenished. And it also has to pump water uphill from a dam system about two hours away. Um, so it's fantastically expensive to get it here. And um, it's not uh, being conserved properly. About nearly 40% is uh, lost to leaks in the, in the pipes. Uh, so it's an ironic place, but perhaps there'll be a, a good effect coming out of it, at least in Mexico City. Elizabeth Malkin covered the World Water Forum Summit for the New York Times. Elizabeth, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Brad Moggridge stands in two worlds. He's an Aboriginal Australian and a scientist, specifically a hydrogeologist with the New South Wales Department of Environment and Conservation. And his latest research is a bridge of sorts, linking a culture that has survived for centuries in one of the driest places on Earth with Australia's growing need for water. Mr. Moggridge joins me by phone from New South Wales. Thank you very much. Thank you. What tribe are you with? It's the Camilleroy people. We've got a, probably the second largest tribe in, New, in the state of New South Wales. I was reading some research you did, and it seems that your tribe lived in a, in a desert or semi-arid land for thousands and thousands of years. How did they do that? There was a number of ways. They would have used their, the environment itself, the landscape, to identify water. Um, they would have used birds, different animal species. Uh, I did find out there was, in the southern Australia, there was reports that they used a line of ants going into a sinkhole, so the Aboriginal people followed them and they found caves and obviously there was water in there as well, so they used ants and then in desert areas 
there's reports also that they used dingoes to find water, obviously, and to survive. So if I was to go out into the outback and follow a dingo or these ants, <laughs> chances are good I'd find water. <laughs> if, if you're in the right country, yeah. So potentially they could lead you to your death, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I got a but, feeling that's exactly where I'd wind up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it took Aboriginal people to know their environment a long time. Now, you, you based your work on oral histories and rock art, artifacts, and dreamtime stories. What are dreamtime stories? Dreamtime stories, in modern-day terms, we could say it's similar to, to the Bible. So it talks about the creation, and those stories that relate to natural springs would be passed on from generation to generation by the elders, the old people, in a tribe, to the, the next generation when they were ready. So that was the way that they passed that information on, and those people would know where those natural springs were. You, you're uh, Aboriginal. Have you heard these Dreamtime stories as you were growing up? Yeah, yeah I, I did. I, uh, a number of my... Uh, my grandmother used to, to talk of, of these stories. The downpoint, I suppose, is that authorities, uh, water managers, governments don't seem to access Aboriginal knowledge. Um, it's, it's quite sad because they have so much knowledge and so much to offer to move this country forward in a way that they can sustainably manage the environment and water, but they don't, they don't want to listen to them. Australia's having a tough time of, of water lately. <laughs> certainly is, yeah. We're, we're in a water crisis and we are in drought situation and uh, Sydney hasn't had much good rain, especially in the in the drinking water catchment. Uh, decent rain for a number of years, and you know the authorities are looking at uh, alternatives. And I think potentially talking to the Aboriginal people is a start. But you know they're looking to modern science, whether it's desalination or drilling deep bores into into aquifers. But if Aboriginal people can survive for thousands of years, I think authorities should be asking the question of how they did it and how they can help us. You know, as a modern society, survive in such a dry continent. Mr. Margridge, thank you very much. No worries. Brad Margridge is currently Principal Policy Officer in the New South Wales Department of Environment and Conservation. Nothing says spring is here quite like the sound of worms. You hadn't noticed? The robins have. As part of the Western Soundscape Project, Jeff Rice reports. Take a listen to your lawn for a minute, just beneath the soil. Those are earthworms. The worms are moving through the soil and the little particles of of sand are, are hitting against each other. That's Dr. Bob Montgomery of Queen's University in Canada. He made these recordings. Chances are you've never heard earthworms before. No, they're extremely quiet. The only way we're able to record them is to put them in a, in a chamber called an anechoic chamber and use a very high-sensitivity directional microphone, one that would pick up a human's voice at, at a couple of hundred meters and pointing it right at the soil about a centimeter away from the worm. So you might think that such a very, very quiet sound would be pretty insignificant. Hardly a sound at all, really. But consider this. Next time you see a robin on your lawn, 
take a look at how it catches worms. Well, way way back into the 1800s, uh, people writing about robins all have thought that they were listening when they were foraging on lawns. You see a robin hopping along and then it cocks his head. And lots of people, lots of naturalists have written popular articles saying that they're listening for, for worms. Nothing was scientifically proven until several years ago when Dr. Montgomery and a colleague were taking a break from their usual fieldwork. Dr. Montgomery studies, among other things, reproductive behavior in birds. And they noticed robins cocking their heads toward the ground. You know, it really looks like they're cocking their head and listening. They decided to answer the question once and for all and devised a series of experiments. Well, we, um, we caught a, a few robins. We, we were working on them anyway. We were studying the way that they look after their babies and that they choose mates. And so we, uh, we grabbed a, a couple and, uh, and put them in an outdoor aviary that we had at our field station. And then we just set, uh, designed a careful experimental protocol to try to eliminate each of the sensory modes in, uh, in order. They tested everything short of robin ESP. They hid worms behind barriers, eliminated the possibilities of smell and touch, but just based on hearing, robins found the worms with no problem. The two scientists published their findings in the journal Animal Behavior. Just how a robin is able to hear something as quiet as an earthworm is still unknown. But they're not the only birds that can locate food this way. Magpies are also known to locate scarab beetle grubs in the ground through hearing. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Rice. There's a new sound, the newest sound around, the strangest sound that you have ever heard. Not like a wild boar or a jungle lion's roar. It isn't like the cry of any bird. But there's a new sound, it's deep down in the ground, and everyone who listens to it squirms. Because it's new, new sound, so deep down in the ground is the sound that's made by worms. There's a new sound, the newest sound around, the strangest sound that you have ever heard. That like a wild boar or a jungle lion's roar. Hey, remember this guy? Hello there, folks. This is Smokey, the forest fire-preventing bear. Those singing friends of mine... Smokey Bear was one of the first public service advertisements created by the Ad Council. Since 1942, the Volunteer Ad Council has devised some of the most venerable and memorable advertisement campaigns. It gave us Rosie the Riveter, the slogan, Loose Lips, Sink Ships, McGruff the Crime-Fighting Dog, and the Just Say No anti-drug message. Now the Ad Council wants us to cool it and has launched a series of commercials designed to convince us to do our part to prevent global warming. Joining me from New York City to discuss the Ad Council's new climate change campaign is Peggy Conlon, president of the organization. Ms. Conlon, thanks for your time. My pleasure. So tell me about this ad campaign. The Ad Council is really delighted to be partnering with uh, Environmental Defense, a longtime partner with the Ad Council, to uh, inform the American people about the uh, urgency uh, about global warming and to give them a personal role in helping to reduce greenhouse gases and to stop global warming. Was there any question about this being an issue that was too hot to handle? Well, we there are no issues that are too hot to handle. I mean, we took on AIDS uh, early. We took on recycling. We've taken on a lot of different issues that at the time uh, there may have been some controversy around. Our real litmus test for taking on an issue is, of course, it has to be a 
significant importance to the country. But the second is that there is a personal action that individuals can take that will really make a difference. Ms. Conlon, let's play a couple of your ads and and, uh, pick them apart. How's that? Okay. Okay, let's listen. I'm getting a catcher's mitt. I'm getting ice skates. I'm getting a devastating flood. Adults are generous. We're even giving kids global warming. But we can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. Go to fightglobalwarming.com. Yeah, that gets parents right where it hurts, right in the kids. Well, that was a creative insight that came out of all of the research the agency did. What they found was, although people uh, don't think that the effects of global global warming are going to happen to them in their lifetimes, what did resonate was we don't want to hurt the things we love. And so using children as a creative device to really frame this uh, in terms of future impact, I think, was real genius. In the past, some of the Ad Council's ads have really become uh, part of the cultural fabric. And and I'm listening to this ad, and they don't seem to have that same, I don't know, Smokey the Bearish kind of feeling to it. <laughs> well, you know, I, not every campaign has an icon, a, an animated character, or a, a catchy tagline. Uh, but these campaigns do begin to build and resonate with the American people. And if you look at things like seatbelts, we started that campaign over 20 years ago. Uh, Seatbelt usage has gone from maybe 21% up to over 80%. Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk is really a great example of a message that has become a social norm. You know, 20 years ago, you probably would have heard people say, let's have one for the road. And now you wouldn't think of not uh, uh, picking a designated driver. Any plans to retire Smokey Bear? No. <laughs> no, we'd never do that. And, and McGruff? No. McGruff's going strong at 25, and, and that's not even counting dog years. <laughs> well, Ms. Conlon, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for your interest, Bruce. Peggy Conlon is president of the Ad Council. Smokey the bear, Smokey the bear, prowling and the growling and the sniffing the air. He can find the fire before it starts to flame. That's why they call him Smokey. That was how he got his name. The waters of Lake Tanganyika are warming, putting in peril a little fish that means big money for one African nation's economy. Early Signs, reports from a warming planet, is coming up, right after this note on emerging science from Bobby Baskin. Meteorologists at the private forecasting service AccuWeather are predicting the 2006 hurricane season will be more active than normal and could result in a devastating storm in the densely populated northeastern United States. The northeastern United States is long overdue for a major hurricane, they say. Supersized hurricanes in the Northeast are not unheard of. One, in 1938, hit southern New England in Providence, Rhode Island. Up to 600 people were killed. Experts say the above-normal water temperatures that accompanied that storm are very similar to what they're seeing this year. Increased severity of hurricanes is linked to global warming. That's because as air temperature rises, so does water temperature. Hurricanes feed on heat energy from the Atlantic Ocean, which is why they occur in late summer and early fall, when the ocean's temperature is at its yearly high. Scientists believe an increase in ocean temperature could cause an increase in the number and severity of hurricanes as a result. Weather patterns observed in the Atlantic Ocean this year have forced experts to conclude that a major hurricane making landfall in the Northeast is not a matter of if, but when. 
That's this week's note on emerging science. I am Bobby Bascom. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, maker of all natural foods, founded on the belief that everyone has the power to make healthful changes. Kashi, seven whole grains on a mission. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund, for excellence in communications and education. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The first European explorers of Africa were obsessed with finding the source of the Nile River, and for a while they believed they found it in Lake Tanganyika. They were wrong, but it was an honest mistake. The lake seems to go on forever. It's 420 miles long. It's the longest freshwater lake in the world, and the second deepest. Lake Tanganyika is also home to more than 350 species of fish. Many are endemic to the lake, which has another remarkable property. The water temperature is almost uniformly consistent, even in the deepest part, 4,700 feet down. The difference from the surface temperature is only about 3 degrees centigrade. But recent research suggests that global warming may be affecting this incredible body of water and the fish which millions of people in this poorest of regions depend upon for sustenance and survival. Today we continue our special series, Early Signs, Reports from a Warming Planet. The series is a collaboration of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Salon.com, and Living on Earth to document places around the world where concerns about climate change are already having an impact. Places like Lake Tanganyika, where producer Jory Lewis begins her story. You can get just about anything at Kigoma's Market. Its maze-like warren of shops holds spices from Zanzibar, replacement batteries for broken cell phones, neon-colored candies made from baobab seeds, and music from India and the Congo. They are small shops. Two steps take you from one to the next. And the market is covered by a tin roof that makes the whole place feel subterranean. As people pass by, sellers call out. The most assertive sellers, though, are the fish hawkers. Their calls compete with the tinny sounds of nearby bootleg music in movie stands and the rhythmic chopping of knife on fish. Kigoma is on Tanzania's far western border. It's a place so far from the rest of the country that most Tanzanians don't know anyone from there, have never visited, and never wanted to. If you ask people in Tanzania's biggest city, Dar es Salaam, what they know about Kigoma, chances are they'll say only one thing, Daga. Daga is a tiny sardine. They have it in other lakes too, but Kigoma Daga from Lake Tanganyika is widely acknowledged to be one of the best. I've been selling fish here since 1956. Fish seller Hassan Kanyoy says he has fresh daga he bought this morning at a nearby beach. Buyers wait there to snatch the fish straight from the cold hands of returning fishermen. It's not always easy. Today there wasn't a lot of daga. He'll try to make up for his losses by changing the size of the piles of daga he always sells for 100 shillings, or about 10 cents. If there's more fish, we make the power higher. If there's less, we make it smaller. 
It's just a basic function of supply. Sometimes the catch is good, and sometimes it isn't. Fishermen say the catch depends on many things. The water's temperature, the moon, the winds, good luck and magic. Kanyoi says maybe there's less to God today because fewer fishermen went out into the lake. It could be. But fishermen and fish sellers aren't the only ones observing the lake's patterns. Scientists are watching the lake, too. In fact, some scientists are saying that maybe there's just less to go on the lake altogether. It's difficult to say definitively how much the fish populations would have declined, but all the data that we have available to us right now, including the fish catch data, the limnological data, the climate data, all of that data points towards decreased fish populations. Bard College biologist Catherine O'Reilly has been studying the lake's ecosystem for over a decade. In 2003, her article in the scientific journal Nature showed that a warming trend in the region is affecting algae in the lake. This development may be putting the Degas population at risk in a place where this little fish is the biggest thing going. There's really no question that the lake has warmed up 0.8 degrees C over the past 80 years. Lakes depend on mixing to create algae. Mixing combines the nutrients on the bottom with the water on top. Tropical lakes like Tanganyika, though, have a hard time of it. Tanganyika's waters separate into layers according to temperature and density, and most of the nutrients stay in the lake's cold depths. Temperate lakes that we're all used to seeing, there's a winter, and winter means that the water temperature will always cool down and mix completely. In Lake Tanganyika, that will never happen. Tanganyika depends on dry season winds to stir things up. But as the water on top gets warmer, it makes it harder for that mixing to occur. So because of that, we don't have as much nutrients coming up from the deep water. And that appears to be having an impact on primary productivity of the lake. So we see fewer algae and the algae are growing slower than they used to. So that suggests that there's not as strong, as strong a base for the fish food web as there used to be. And less algae means less zooplankton, the main food of Degas, which itself is the main food of other fish in the lake. O'Reilly is not the only scientist concerned about Lake Tanganyika. The lake is heavily threatened. Hudson Nkotagu is a geologist at the University of Dar es Salaam and has spent a lifetime studying the lake. He says Lake Tanganyika is threatened by several factors. Pollution uh, is coming from various sources. For example, in Tanzania, domestic waste excessive fishing, uh, also even use of inappropriate fishing gear. Now, another threat that is uh, uh, coming up uh, recently uh, is, is the climate change. There's no disagreement about temperature rise in the lake. Other published studies have also shown temperature increases, slowed wind speeds, and decreased algae growth in Tanganyika and other lakes in the area. Where there is some disagreement is whether we can already see a decline in the catch. But it's a hard connection to track. We don't know the number is increasing or the number is dropping down. This is to give only the picture. Yes, frame up the picture. From his cluttered office across from the droning generator that provides intermittent electricity to the area, government statistician Alphonse Simu has been tracking Kigoma region's Degas catch for nearly 30 years. Uh, the, the data is the metric, metric turns 50,002. The numbers tell a story of boom and bust. You might expect for the catch to go up when there are more fishermen on the lake and for them to go down when the numbers of fishermen decline. Sometimes that's happened, but in many years in Kigoma, it's been just the opposite. You see, there is up and down due to the different factors.
Sometimes it just seems like luck. But one thing seems clear. A decline in Degas would be a serious situation. Degas feeds the nation, and the nation is growing. In Kigoma, the poorest region of one of the poorest countries in Africa, Degas is essential. Although there are over 300 species of fish in the lake, only Degas shows up on the tables of even the poorest people. Only Degas directly provides jobs to at least a million people in a place where there isn't much work. And only Degas swims in the lake in such abundance. Despite such certainty, some fishermen are saying that over time, their Degas catches have gone down. Up the shore a couple of miles at the village of Kaolongabo, retired Degas fisherman Myonge Sef fixes the cracks in his son's boats by patiently pounding in bits of cotton dipped in bright yellow palm oil. He says Degas fishing is certainly not as good as it was 30 years ago when he was first starting out. Oh, it was so good. When we used to fish with our fathers, it was really good. There were so many Degas. People could fish 5,000 tons. In tons. Back in those days, there was so much Degas. Sef, a wiry man of 46, knows the moods of Lake Tanganyika. He knows, for instance, that there are at least four different types of winds that blow on the lake, and that the big ones come when the corn has babies. That wind starts the time of scarce Degas. Sef knows the routine well after a lifetime on the lake. It has its ups and downs. We fish because we have no other job. Our grandfathers fished here. Our fathers fished here. We'll fish here and pass it on to our children, who will fish and pass it on again. It's our legacy. He also knows that Degas are scarce when the moon is full, waning, or waxing, which it is tonight. After all, fishing in these parts follows the path of the moon. When the moon is not full, they go out into the open waters in search of a good place to catch Degas, the silvery wonder the length of an index finger. The fishermen use kerosene lamps to attract zooplankton, Degas' main food. It's a classic mousetrap. Lure the zooplankton, and the Degas will follow. In the darker the night, the more they are all seduced by the lights above. So Degas fishermen float on the waters of Africa's deepest lake all night, waiting. Fishing Degas is a ritual that has gone on for generations on the lake's shores. And even though their methods of fishing differ, the spectacle remains the same. At night, they light up the water. Geologist Hudson Inkotagu grew up in the area around the lake and never gets tired of the sight. Uh, you would see uh, in the night when the fishing is taking place, uh, you see it's a, you know, a big city. Uh, maybe it's a big city with a lot of lights, uh, like maybe New York, yeah? <laughs> That's a comparison. But it's actually fishermen who are actually fishing. But when the moon is full or waxing or waning, there's too much light for their lamps to make a difference. Many fishermen take a few days off. Others just bring more lamps and go out further into the lake. That's not an option for the Kaolongabo fishermen, who still use paddle boats and can't go very far. Seth works underneath a shady tree on the beach where he and a few other men while away the day. And they will while away the night, too, since there won't be any fishing for them on this bright night. But there are fishermen who are better off and can go out deeper into the lake. Many of those fishermen fish from Katanga Beach, just south of Kigoma. Uh, 
Mickey Dotty Jafari is one of them. When Jafari emerges from his boat cold and wet, he gets out to a rocky beach cluttered with at least a hundred other brightly painted boats with names like the Power of Jesus and the Male Seed. This morning, he and his fellow fishermen brought in enough to fill the bottom of his 20-foot-long boat. The water was a little warm today, and there were a few waves. It was very good. He's a small man, just over five feet tall, and at 50 years old has a gruff voice from long nights on the water. My father was a fisherman and inherited the trade from him, and my grandfather was also a fisherman. Jafari says the catch now is much better than in the old days, but for him, the catch may be better than ever for a reason. Unlike Miyange Sef's family at Kalongabo, Jafari has gotten to fish with better lights and uses a boat with an outboard motor. The engine lets him go out much further than his father was able to go three decades ago when they were fishing closer to the shore. It starts to rain, and people unfold their umbrellas. Jafari pulls a threadbare overcoat closer over his wet clothing. He likes fishing and says it gives him enough money to live. Most fishermen make more money than farmers, but they find it difficult to save any money when the catch varies season to season and even day to day. Despite the good catch these days, Jafari is not happy his adult son has followed him into the water. This life is too tough. He can't do it. I've decided to send him to school so he can get an education. I got stuck in this job and I missed a chance to go to school. It's a common refrain. Everyone fishes, but no one wants his sons to have to. Yeah. It stops raining, and just 20 paces away from Jafari's boat, a kid begins making turntable noises. His audience is a group of women and children who have started to spread the ga on the sand to dry. People stop their work to cheer him on. It's a song about living and getting money and not getting HIV. He's 17 but looks 12 and is going back to school after break. He's lucky, though. High school in Tanzania is not free, and most people can't afford it. After all, the area around Tanganyika is like a one-factory town, except there's no factory. There's only the lake, 420 miles long, nearly a mile deep, and with seemingly enough fish in its depths to support the over 10 million people living on its shores. Most fishermen say it's impossible for the Daga to ever permanently go away. They know there are periods of plenty and periods of scarcity. During the periods of scarcity, the lake's lights darken. Some fishermen go out anyway to look for Daga during those times. They go out again and again, waiting and watching. The fishermen say the Daga always come back. They always have before, and most people can't imagine that this cycle could ever break down. But this deep and ancient lake is changing, and not everyone will be able to change with it. Many fishermen aren't going out tonight at Katanga. With the moon gathering strength, even with their big motors and plentiful lights, they know they might not have good luck. But one group of intrepid fishermen is leaving early. 
Malema Musa and his crew are loading in several lights and canisters of gasoline. He connects the fuel pump to his 40-horsepower Yamaha motor. Musa bums a few cigarettes. Ignoring the gasoline, he lights one before casting off. Smoking helps pass the time, he says, and keeps him warm. They are going a little over a mile out tonight to a place where another fisherman got lots of Degas the night before. How much they'll get, no one can say. I can't really predict how it's going to be. Who will know when we get there? For Living on Earth, I'm Jory Lewis. Next week, Early Signs reports from a warming planet travels to New Zealand. It's where residents of the South Pacific nation of Tuvalu have been moving afraid their islands may disappear under a rising tide. We love our islands. I'm sad, that's the word, sad, to leave Tuvalu and come here, but we have to do it because, you know, for our own safety and that of our kids. Early Signs is a collaboration of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Salon.com, and Living on Earth. To see photos and read a print version of the Lake Tanganyika story, visit our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week in Africa, along the River Mara in Kenya, where it's said the hippos spend their days in the water telling jokes and then surface at dusk for a good laugh. Chris Watson was there to catch the routine. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Bolinsky, Jennifer Chu, Rachel Gottbaum, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young. With help from Christopher Bullock, Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Bobby Bascom and Emily Taylor. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood will be back next week. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Sounds like me. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.